Hi, and welcome to another episode of On the Spot with Dr. Michael Walker. We're going to continue in our discussion on ancient African Christianity. In this episode, we're going to discuss the period roughly between 150 AD to about 300 AD. Up to this point in our discussions, our primary focus centered around establishing a basic introduction to the subject of ancient African Christianity and the need to study this topic as a whole. Attention was given to dispelling myths, identifying the period for ancient African Christianity, establishing the meaning of the term Africa as it was, u- as it was used during the ancient uh, period, and the reason North Africa was colonized by the Romans. Our look at the arrival of Christianity into Africa, specifically North Africa, as we have discussed previously, revealed it's difficult to pin down an exact date of when Christianity arrived in North Africa. However, we have learned and discussed that some historians date the arrival of Christianity into Africa as early as the 40s, 50s, 60s, or even 70s AD. Our understanding of the makeup of the people in Romanized North Africa during the ancient period, particularly the period that we've been examining thus far, unearthed to us by the work of scholars and historians that ancient North Africa was basically a multi-ethnic, multicultural, and multi-religious community at that particular time. There was no such thing as race. There was no use of racial language. The invention of classifying humans by skin color alone was at least 16 centuries away. John G. Jackson reported the earliest scientific classifications of people in terms of color occurred by the naturalist Linnaeus during the 18th century. Linnaeus lived between 1707 and 1778, but it was Linnaeus who affixed essentially four skin colors uh, into the known area of social discussion and scholarship and philosophy and when he and anthropology and when he did so he did it based on a geographical um, setting so for instance for Linnaeus he said Europeans were white he said Africans were black Asiatics were yellow and Americans were red and I know some of you some of you are probably listening to this in contemporary times have probably heard someone use the, the racial term red and have wondered why are they using red because there are no red peoples. Well, it goes back to Linnaeus and what he did in terms of being one of the earliest um, philosophers, scholars, etc., to establish some sort of racial color, race, color-based uh, nomenclature on people based upon where they resided. From that point forward, Certain anthropologists now sought to uphold the need uh, and the, the pressure to validate skin color classification was right. And in fact, one of the things that uh, historians and uh, scholars help us to understand is that unbiased scholars contend that the anthropologists of the 18th and 19th century, 
managed to hardly agree on the number and arrangement of skin colors, meaning they they came up with everything from four to three to five to six and so on. So so the anthropologists of the 18th and 19th century figured out how not to agree on how many uh, races there could be or were. But somehow in all of that disagreement, they managed to find room to unanimously agree on the superiority of white skin over black skin. I point this out not to be controversial. I do so to emphasize that the start and early spread of Christianity in 33 AD, as it travels out of Western Asia and migrates over into North Africa, and then from North Africa into Europe and everywhere else throughout history, prior to year zero, race did not exist. So as we're examining ancient African Christianity, the period we identified as the first 1,000 years of the existence of Christianity, there was no such thing as race. Nobody's using racial language. Nobody is referring to people by race. Nobody expects to be called a race. Nobody expects to be dealt with on the basis of their race. Nobody expects for their race to be an issue. There is no race um, classified churches. In other words, there's no there's no black church. There's no white church. There's no yellow church and so on. Race just does not exist. It is literally uh, 16 to 17 centuries down the road. Okay. In, in our current discussion, we're going to turn our attention now to the roots of North African civilization. We're going to take a high level view of how civilization ended up in North Africa. What are some of those roots that, that help civilization to cultivate and develop there? We're going to look at ways Africa shaped the Christian mind. Believe it or not, Christian thinking much of it, a great deal of it, was influenced right by Africans in this um, this window during the uh, ancient period. So during many of the church fathers and during that church father era, we're going to look at some of those later on, not in this discussion. But I do want to start to bring to your attention that there were things uh, related to Christian thinking that were distinctly and uniquely developed in Africa. And then I also want to bring to your attention martyrdom. I want to talk to you about, uh, at a high level, why were Christians being martyred uh, so early after the church had been established? I think that's very important for us to at least get some sense of understanding as to why that occurred so that we can better understand uh, why martyrs are are observed as well as we can better appreciate what would cause somebody to die on behalf of their beliefs about Jesus Christ. So let's look at the roots of North Africa real quick, because we really need to look at the roots of North African civilization. In our previous discussions on ancient African Christianity, I've pointed out to you, uh, or I have pointed out that Africans were not dependent upon or needed Europeans or any other people group to help them as it pertained to 
being a civilized people. I've helped you to understand in previous discussions that Africans at the, in this era were not uncivilized people. They were not uncouth. They were not savages. They were not barbarians. They were not any of those labels. They were a civilized people. Okay. They, they I, I cite something that Count Volney said uh, when he was doing some work in his studies and his exploits and, and his research in examining Africa. And I wrote this down because I really wanted to share it with you. Something that he said uh, several, about a century or two ago, he said, those piles of ruins, which you see in that narrow valley watered by the Nile, are the remains of opulent cities, the pride of ancient kingdom of the ancient kingdom of Ethiopia. There are people now forgotten, discovered while others were yet barbarians, the elements of the arts and sciences, a race of men now rejected from society for their sable skin and frizzled hair, founded on the study of the laws of nature, those civil and religious systems which still govern the universe. In very layman terms, Count Volney is basically saying, uh, while everybody else in the world were barbarians, Africans, specifically the kingdom of Ethiopia, they were raising cities in the Nile Valley. They were cultivating and engaging in arts and sciences. They were founding the study of the laws of nature. They were founding the studies of civil and religious systems, which he found uh, still very much governing, governing the universe. Let's look at E. Haldeman Julius. He said something related to this in his pursuits. He said, it's pretty well settled that the city is the Negro's contribution to civilization. For it was in Africa where the first cities grew up. So when we think about uh, uh, raising builders, when we think about building metropolis, when we think milk metropolises, when we think about urban development, uh, he, here are two scholars, here are two researchers, he, here were two in their day saying, you know, the truth is, according to what we've been able to research, that something that right there, the Africans were doing that before we knew what it was. That they were over there doing that. They were already getting that in. Uh, they had already put that work in. They, they knew things about architecture. They knew things about building. They knew buildings. They knew things about designing uh, that they, they were, had already mastered. So therefore, they were not looking for someone to come and bring those sorts of things to them. They were already doing it. One can tell now, let, let's move forward. One can tell by their use of terms. I'm talking about uh, uh, Volney and uh, Haldeman and Julius that when you hear the terms race and the terms Negro, that gives you somewhat of a clue as to when they wrote and when they were sort of alive, or not sort of, but were alive, because you know uh, that uh, these terms race and Negro uh, historically and philosophically don't begin to show up until post uh, you know, 15th century, certainly around the 16th century. So you begin to realize that these men are now giving uh, tribute to the genius and the skill set and the advancement of African kingdoms there in Ethiopia uh, that they found themselves at least uh, 16 uh, centuries removed from. 
So they're saying basically, look here, uh, these sorts of things is, is nothing new to Africans. Let's go a little bit further. Because we need to gain some sense of how North Africans produced and sustained, sustained their civilizations prior to Roman colonization. So often when it comes to the African, no matter where he or she finds themselves in the world, their story is often told by starting with a colonized position. Their story is often told as the people who have either been enslaved, the people who have been endangered, the people who have been mutilated, the people who have been relegated to the bottom of the social order, their story is not really told from its true genesis. And so often when people think about Africans immediately where they come up with a point of demarcation is some particular place in the world where they were on the lowest rung of the social order. And I just believe we need to refresh, reclaim, reinvigorate our memories, even recharge our memories to pull back to the forefront of of our memories, to wake up in terms of our memory consciousness, to wake up and insert in it the true Uh, realities of African people pre-colonial periods. That's pre-colonial periods in Africa, pre-colonial periods in uh, uh, from the Arabs and pre-colonial periods uh, going west by the Europeans. We really do need to take some time to look at that and understand it for ourselves so that it makes better, better sense to us so we can better appreciate the Africans' contributions to world history. Now, to do what I want to do in terms of the roots of North African civilization, let's begin with the Nile River. With the Nile River being 4,000 miles long, uh, the river starts in the south. The river does not start in the northern part of Africa where it ends. It actually starts in the south. And, and so it travels from the south, north, in a direction and in an area of what some scholars have called the heart of Africa. Now, as it flowed north, you can begin to under, begin to imagine that with clean water flowing, we now have water. And where there's clean water flowing, there's now opportunity uh, for agriculture. There's opportunity um uh, to, to uh, sustain a people, clean water helps sustain communities. There's opportunity now to use water to develop uh, other areas that make life and civilization easier to advance. Some scholars and historians label the Nile River literally as a cultural super highway. Now, this cultural highway phrase references the African cultures, as to say that with an S, the African cultures that developed along the Nile River. Now, let me pause and allow me to say this to you. And and I, I do say this with a heart of sincerity. When you think about Africans, you cannot think about a people who is monolithic in the sense of in the sense that there's just one kind of African. The truth is, it has never been that way in the history of Africa. I personally wrestled with that many, 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 many years ago. As I started thinking about Africa and started thinking about Africans as a young person, I thought all Africans were just Africans. I did not know because I had not spent time uh, studying the continent of Africa that there are different 
types of Africans and where you find different types of Africans, you find different African cultures. So it's important for me to, to share with you that along this uh, so-called uh, uh, cultural superhighway, there were different African cultures. And wherever you find culture, you find government. Wherever you find culture, you, you find the arts. Wherever you find culture, you find um, you, you find religion. Wherever you, you find culture, you, you find you know entertainment. There's so many things that you find. You find the sciences, you find education. There's so many things that you find where culture exists. It is important for you and I to hear that there were different African cultures, which from a religious perspective, as we're just talking about something pertaining to religion and spirituality, it's important for me to tell you that Africans possess numerous religions. There's no one religion for Africa. So there are numerous religions. And, and, and when I make use of this term cultures, then I'm pointing out to you that there's just different indigenous um, Africans uh, that were along this Nile River. Okay, and as cultures begin to develop, what we've been able to learn through the work of historians and through the great work of many scholars is that as African cultures developed, we saw languages develop. They began to engage in trade and communication. They were farmers. They began to farm their lands. They began to exercise and, and engage in and become proficient in oral and written traditions. They begin to develop traditions. They begin to develop ways of memory making. They begin to develop ways of sharing and knowing things. Uh, they developed their African religions. They were functioning. They were a fully functioning civilization. By the time Christianity arrives in North Africa, North Africa was a type of seedbed for Christianity. Christianity did not come into Africa and have to uh, sort of come in and dig up everything. There was a seedbed for Christianity. Why? Because African people already, uh, regardless of how many um, numerous religions there are, many of these religions have within them the basic concept of a supreme being or supreme God. Okay, so, so that would not have been foreign to them. And if we begin to go further, some of them even have within them um, some type of salvation uh, component. And so the salvation of Christ would not have been foreign to them. So what we must begin to understand is that through the history of time, mankind's religious sentiments, mankind's religious beliefs, mankind's religious understandings, mankind's theological convictions, they evolve. And in some instances, they devolve. That's very hard to say. It's not the kind of thing you can say uh, across a pulpit without losing half a church, but it is something we do need to understand as we are studying in unbiased ways as it pertains to the history of Christianity. And so I want to leave in your mind that by the time Christianity arrives, Africa is a seedbed for it. It's ripe for the message. Now let's turn our attention and look at ways Africa shaped uh, Christian thinking. I'm going to I'm going to confess to you. It took quite a while and quite a bit of schooling before I came into direct understanding that Africans contributed significantly to Christian thinking. So I want you to get some idea 
of how that occurred. And I'm going to introduce you uh, to what Thomas Oden pointed out to us are seven ways Africans contributed to Christian thinking. I put these down. I jotted them down because they're that important and I want you to get them. So let me give these to you. Uh, the first one, and, and this is this is a good one. The Library of Africa, you know, that was in Alexandria. So the, the, the Library of Alexandria, uh, along with the African learning community, when the African learning community, by the way, was comprised of, you know, educators, artists, philosophers, scientists, writers, they all came together. And what happened is as they functioned, and they functioned very good around this big, you know, for that day, this, this massive library of Alexandria, that particular collaboration around the library of Alexandria, what collaboration? The collaboration of educators, artists, philosophers, scientists, and writers. That group of people, that learning community, frame the model for what would become the Western University. Okay. It's probably not fair to say, and it's not fair to say it is the Western, it was the Western University because it wasn't. It provided the model. So the very model for the Western University system did not come from the Greeks. It came from the Africans. Okay. Let's try to go a little further. Let me give you another one. The rules and methods, because in, in Christianity, we're very big on what rules and what methods are you using to interpret scripture? Because we already know, let's just keep it plain, that there are all kinds of rules and methods, right? So from the onset, the rules and methods for interpreting scriptures were framed by Africans. Let me give you another one. Number three, early Christian, Christian dogmas, which included the definition of Christology, the definition of Trinity, were the Trinity were literally shaped by Africans. Okay, let me give you a fourth one. The framework for the Christian ecumenical uh, councils were, were influenced uh, by early African councils, which are known as African conciliar patterns. They folks examined that. And then took it back into Europe and then developed the Christian ecumenical councils. Let me give you number five. The genesis of the Christian um, of Christian um, monastics began in Africa. It was the African monks that ordered their lives around daily prayer and study and work and sacrifice and radical discipleship that gave the model for what would become the Christian monasticism. Isn't that interesting? Let me give you number six. The earliest advocates, this is this is neat, the early advocates for Christian neo, uh, moving from, uh, moving into Christian neo-Platonism uh, were, were African. That philosophical movement began in the Nile Valley, or I should say the Nile Delta, excuse me, not the Valley, but the Nile Delta. And then it moved to Rome and Athens. Okay. Finally, this is this is one that's very interesting. All key players, that all key players, before before I give you the last one, I want to share this with you. All key players of, of, of Neoplatonism were African. Okay. Here's the last one. Here's the last one. Advanced rhetorical and dialectic studies began in Africa. 
this information is out there. It's in the libraries. It's well documented. It's well recorded uh, by historians and and anthropologists and and and, um, uh, and 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 philosophers are aware of it. Why? Because it's well recorded. The goal here then is not to demonstrate that other ethnic groups are beneath Africans. It is to demonstrate to you that African inclusion and influence on early Christianity is a must in terms of talking about the history of Christianity. For, new, for reasons too numerous to even count, bias scholars have minimized, and, and I'm going to be very frank here, have even outright omitted ancient Christian or ancient African Christian contributions to early Christianity. If you didn't know any better, you would think ancient Christianity left Jerusalem, went straight into Europe, and Europe developed everything there was in terms of framing the this particular new young religion. And that is not true. And it's well documented. Christianity the, starts over in Western Asia, in Jerusalem, and it quickly, very quickly. And when I say quickly, we're talking less than 50 years. It's in North Africa. Okay, people are already moving that direction. It's in North Africa. So we, we need to have that discussion. We need to put that out there and let our minds begin to wrap around. Let me go a little bit further. There is no time and room for us to... Uh, to identify all the reasons. But it is possible to affirm because if we try to identify all the reasons that, you know, ancient Africans were omitted, I mean, we just don't have a time and space. But I, here's what I can do. What we can do is we can reason together and discover that it is possible to affirm the use of race and racial thinking has done enormous damage to the purity of ancient Christian history, ancient African Christian history, has done great damage to Christianity as a whole and moving beyond Christianity, racial and racial terms and Race thinking, race ideologies have done great damage to people all over the world. I want to shift this now and move us into some things about martyrdom. Excuse me, my tongue is getting twisted here. Martyrdom. There's some things about being martyred that I want you to understand uh, as it pertains to being uh, an early Christian. Because contrary to what you might believe in terms of... Um, the topic of martyr or being martyred, that, that, that was a big deal in that day. But I want to break down some of the key things I think that are important for you, just on a on surface level, a high level, so you can wrap your minds around it. And as we turn our attention now to looking at martyr, what it means to be martyred, let me drop you over in the New Testament scriptures in the book of Acts, where readers encounter a brief, brief recorded account of Stephen's death. Stephen the martyr, described in the scriptures there in 
chapter six of the book of Acts as a man full of God's grace and power who performed great wonders and signs among the people. Question for you. How does a man who was selected by the disciples of Christ at Jerusalem managed to uh, carry out the work of ensuring Hellenistic and Hebraic Jewish widows receive their fair distribution of daily food end up being stoned to death? Did Stephen decide it was time to die for Christ? Did he desire to provide an example of how to be violently murdered for one's faith in Christ? Did he set out to give an example of what it looks like uh, to speak truth to power and die right after you finish? These are important, very important questions. They're very important questions and are ripe for investigation and analysis. See, the biblical account of Stephen's death, quite frankly, is brief. Yeah, there's no uh, you know, thousand page uh, written literary discourse on his life. No, we have just a few words, if we were to be honest about it, about a man who was stoned to death for what he said, for what he said to some people that got them angry and aggravated. We're given no details on where Stephen lived. We don't know if he was married. We don't know if he had children. We don't know if he, if he, if his parents were alive. We don't know if his siblings were alive. We don't know if he was a, he was an only child. But what we do have in terms of data is in the Bible, and that data tells us that Stephen was murdered. Now, now, the question is, why was this brother murdered? Why was Stephen murdered? What did Stephen do that was so bad that caused him to be murdered? That, that's very important. That's worthy of you and I uh, discussing. That's worthy of you and I looking at. It's worthy of us trying to figure out how does he become the recorded martyr of the New Testament scriptures? See, the back half of Acts chapter 6 tells us in some very real way, Stephen managed to cause the Jews in North Africa. If you didn't know that, when you're reading uh, chapter 6 and you begin to get that account of the people he riled up in terms of aggravated. Well, when you see there, it says that the Jews who were in Cyrene or Alexandria, those were two cities in North Africa. So I'm not making that up when I, when I say it. I'm just giving that to you straight. Stephen somehow managed to cause the Jews that lived in North Africa and the Jews that resided in Northwest Asia, Asia and Cilicia, to take issue with him. Now, now, these Jews didn't just take something, a little issue with him. They took a lot of issue with him. So much so uh, that they excited the people, the elders and the teachers of the law by telling them that Stephen speaks against this holy place and, and the law. In fact, they say, look here, y'all. Stephen running around here saying that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and he's going to change the customs that Moses gave us. Now, when, when they heard that kind of commotion, when they heard that kind of report, rather, it created quite the commotion. Folks got upset. Quite frankly, folks got bothered by it. Now, now they were so bothered. 
that they began to argue with him. But the problem was, and when they argued with him, the spirit was with him and they couldn't beat him in an argument. And so Stephen now finds himself in front of the Sanhedrin, which was one of the Jewish councils. He finds himself in front of the Sanhedrin. He finds himself in front of the high priest in one of the, I should say, one of the councils of the, of the, of the Jewish faith. And he finds himself in front of the high priest. And when the high priest turns to him and say, listen, Stephen, are these charges true? Stephen gives the high priest and all the people who are there. See, see, catch this. Just get this in your mind. You're giving a speech and all your haters are there. All your haters. See, Stephen had all his haters right there. And while his haters was there in front of the chief priest, Stephen took that moment to walk them back down memory lane. See, see, Stephen went on back and he went right on back and gave him what I like to call a historical redress. And what he did was he gave them a historical redress of the glory of God, beginning with Abraham. He started with Abraham. Then he traveled and moved them through some of the acts and deeds of their ancestors. And he didn't stop there. He kept moving and he moved them on through, through on up to the point of culmination. And he culminated by charging his audience, including the high priest of having killed the righteous one, i.e. Jesus Christ. And receiving the law without obedience. So he said, look here, y'all then killed the righteous one and you got the law, but you don't obey it. Now, now, everybody that was listening, his haters, they were listening. And when they were listening along with the members of the Sanhedrin to, to Stephen talk like this, let's just call it what it is. Them folk got really, really, really riled up. The scriptures say that they were so furious that they rushed Stephen, dragged him out of the city and stoned him to death. N now this time to ask some questions. See, because this brother then got stoned to death because he had the audacity to tell his haters uh, like it is. And when he told them what it is and like it is, he basically called them uh, no different than their ancestors. And he, and he didn't stop with it. He said, here's how you know different. Were not, the, were not there any prophets that were not persecuted? Y'all just like them. You persecute the righteous one. Then you turn around and get the law and you don't even obey it. Oh, I'm sorry. Bing, you're just like our ancestors. Huh. You kill the righteous one and don't even obey the law you've been given. Why did these people kill Stephen? I'll give it to you quite simply. This is my quite simple estimation. I'm summing it up now. Because he had the audacity to tell the audience, you persecuted the right one and you received the law without obedience. And you are no different than your ancestors who persecuted the prophets. They, they couldn't take no more. See, he had thoroughly, if you, if you want to say profaned them, he had done it well. And they couldn't listen to no more of that profanity. He had to go. And they're they not waiting. They, not got, they don't have time now to issue no warrant for his arrest. No, they're bypassing the warrant. They don't have time now 
for the to 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 to, to build a case against him. No, they ain't got time for that. They don't have time to go down to the district attorney's office and plead their case to the district attorney. Nope, they don't have time for that. They don't have time for the district attorney to decide to bring charges on him by his or home his or her own free will. Nope. They don't have no time for that. They are so riled up, so agitated, so disgusted that they say we must do something about this ourselves. They bum rushed that brother, snatched him and drug him out the city and stoned him to death. The people decided <laughs> this brother must die and it has to happen right now. Hmm. Let me give this to you. See, a little more than 30 years after the start of Christianity, Christians began to be persecuted and martyred by Romans. And this was occurring by, you know, on the, you know, under the, under the leadership of Roman leaders. Now, the sad reality is Christians could be killed for any reason at any time. Let me give that to you again, because I may have said that too fast. The reality is, and it is sad. Christians could be killed at any time for any reason. It is often said their only crime was being a Christian. Now this raises just, I'm going to submit it to us, one basic question. Why were Christians killed for any reason and at any time during this period, historians help us understand the historical context. And one of the things that uh, we learn about the historical context is this. During that particular historical context, Christians during that period had a great deal. I should say it this way. Now, let me let me let me redress it and say it this way. Much of the agitation between the Christians and the Romans had a lot to do with their relationship based on theological convictions. Okay. Many of the Roman citizens hated the Christians because they believed the Christians were atheists. <laughs> I know that's shocking to several of you. Yep, that's right. We got, we have that recorded. We've got that consensus from historical data. They believe the Christians were atheists. L let me try to explain that for somebody because when you hear me say Christian being atheist, that's, that's just sort of scrambling all the eggs upstairs in your mind. Okay, so let me explain it. Although the Romans did not hold to a monotheistic faith, okay, or belief system, they were theological. Let me let me do that. Let me give it to you again. Although the Romans didn't believe in just one God. At the same time, they held and held on to and believed strongly in a theological framework. The Romans believed. That they were in relationship with the gods and the gods were in relationship with their people. Okay, so in very layman terms, the the Romans believed 
that they were in relationship with the gods and the gods were in relationship with them. Try not to allow yourself to get hung up on the point uh, that the Romans worshiped more than one God or multiple gods. Allow yourself a little space to see their fundamental belief. Here it is, that people enter and engage in relationship with divinity. That was their fundamental theological belief that manifested itself in the worshiping of more than one God. See, the issue with the Christians for the Romans was not that they believed in Christ. The Romans had no problem with that because their theological convictions do not revolve around what one believes. They had no problems with Christians uh, believing in Christ, professing their faith in Christ. See, they don't have no problem with that. But that's not an issue for the Romans. The issue that the Romans had with the Christians is that the Christians were not willing to do right by the gods. You see, doing right by the gods involved presenting and offering sacrifices to the gods. Because within Roman theology, Roman theology includes this performance-based component, meaning it's what you do for the gods that please them that in turn causes the gods to bless us. So they have this heavy performance-based component in their theology, although it is a theology that houses multiple gods. Nonetheless, they fundamentally believe that the human's role in the relationship with the gods is performance-based. And the performance is presenting and offering sacrifices to those gods. So for the Romans, for the Romans, see, for the Romans, proper relationship with the gods is predicated on actions, not beliefs. For the Christians, proper relationship with God is God is predicated on beliefs followed up by actions. You see the difference? Therefore, since the Christians would not give up or give in to presenting sacrifices to the gods that the Romans were sacrificing to, the Romans believed that the Christians now were a threat to all of the Roman society, or I should say the Roman Empire. Why were they a threat? Because the Romans would believe that when they presented these sacrifices to the gods, the gods would bless Rome and allow Rome to survive. So when you get the Christians now who won't pre present no, no offerings or sacrifices to them, not only is our government officials hot with them, everyday ordinary walking the street Roman citizens are, are hot with them because they see these Christians as a threat to the very survival of Rome, not survival in terms of a nation conquering us, a survival in terms of the gods destroying us. So the Christians then were branded atheists not because of what they believe, because of what they would not practice. In other words, what they would not do. So I'm showing you here that in turn for the Romans, you can be labeled an atheist because your performance is not right in terms of your relationship with the gods. Okay. Now, since the Christians were a threat to public safety, <laughs> this is quite different now from the present day context 
in America where Christians and the government are concerned. You see, our our grief, if we have one, and our certain uh, plight with 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 uh, government uh, officials in terms of American life is this: that Christians will lobby and Christians will place a demand on politicians to protect their beliefs, not their actions. Want our beliefs protected, not our actions. In other words, when you start thinking about martyrdom now in terms of Christianity, it's important for me to tell you as I begin to wrap this up that it began in the first century and continues up to this present day. Let me give you one big takeaway before I get out of here. And here it is. Here's the big takeaway that I want you to get from this particular segment of the discussion. Here's the big takeaway I want you to get from this segment of of the discussion. In the area of thought, as we close, people commit terrible atrocities against other people based on their theological convictions. Let me give it to you again. People commit terrible atrocities against other people on the basis of their theological convictions. Well, that concludes everything I want to share with you in this particular discussion. In our next discussion, I want to begin introducing you to some of the Christian thinkers, and we're going to spend some time talking about Tertullian. I want to introduce you to Tertullian. I think it's important that we start to meet some of these great thinkers. We're not going to have time and space to get to, to, to cover all of them. We're not going to have time and space to cover every area of their life, but I do want to introduce you to some of them. Well, until I get a chance to talk with you again, I will see you round like a donut.